It's said that Hermes, messenger of the gods, instructed primitive peoples in the arts and sciences of culture, giving birth to humanity as we now know it. From the Hermetic perspective, everything is connected by core principles that are seamlessly woven into the holographic and fractal nature of reality. My job is to expose those Hermetic principles to modern people and to inspire an alchemical renaissance so we can collectively integrate them with terrestrial arts and sciences for a more beautiful and sustainable human experience. My name is Phoenix Aurelius. I'm the founder of Alchemiculture, which is a perennial philosophy that incorporates hermetic and alchemical principles into every aspect of human culture, the arts, the sciences, and our relationship with nature and natural resources. Join me as we actively weave hermeticism back into our social fabric. Hi there, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this Alchemiculture podcast episode. I am your host, Phoenix Aurelius. I am joined today by Matthew Wood. Probably many of you are familiar with Matthew Wood through his work of the Earthwise Herbals. I know that that was one of my first introductions to his work, although he's a very prolific author, if I can say so myself. He has many books. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with his work, basically after studying botany and astrology as preparatives, Matthew began to practice herbalism and homeopathy at Present Moment Herbs in Minneapolis in 1982. He currently is the author of 10 books on herbalism and related topics, including the book of Herbal Wisdom, uh, the Earthwise Herbal and Earthwise Repertory, which we discussed just moments ago, and the most recent, Seven Guideposts on the Spiritual Path, the Shamanism in Genesis, and also Holistic Medicine and the Extracellular Matrix, which is due out November 7th, I think, is when it's shipping from Amazon. Yes. Right. So... Uh, I've got my pre-order on that. I strongly suggest uh, after listening to this interview, you go do the same. All of the links will be down in the description. Uh, he currently teaches through the Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism, teaching your yes. own brand, right, Matthew? Yep, <laughs> that's correct. That's cool. Well, welcome to the show, brother. It's it's really a pleasure to have you on to chat with you. Yeah, we really are brothers, I'd say. Uh, yeah, it sounds like we're both uh, alch alchemists. You're a practicing alchemist. I'm more of a... Uh, temperamental alchemist or philosophical <laughs> I would call myself yeah fair enough so yeah we were we talked in advance here about starting uh with the matrix um maybe just because it's the most recent book that just came out I got these like three days ago this is the advanced copies for the author and um and it is it is not exactly innately an alchemical subject um i guess it could be i mean there probably is an alchemical interpretation a way to fit this in. maybe you can probably tell me when i finish describing it for the audience here <clears throat> but the um the matrix is the area well basically between the capillary bed the cell wall and also the lymphatic capillary. So that's the inner space of the organism. That is uh, the internalized mother ocean. Four and a half million years ago, we, the multicellular organs were, uh, uh, developed out of single cells. The single cells, like develop, they somebody colonized the bottom of the ocean, became a little clone, all identical, and then they generated sea slime to protect themselves. And then they generated a a um, compartment around themselves. Some cells move to the outside to become the, the surface. That was an early differentiation of cells. And um, then we have a multicellular organism full of slime, which is the matrix polymers um, and fibers. Uh, 
So the these, um, it turns out this is a regulatory system and it's called the ground regulatory system. It was discovered and, uh, or at least it was uh, published in 1975 by Alfred Pissinger, one of my heroes, along with Paracelsus. Uh, Pissinger was a holistic uh, MD at the University of Vienna in, um, in, uh, uh, well, in Vienna, yeah, at the medical school in Vienna. And it's interesting, the, when Rudolf Virchow came up with the cell theory in 1858, the University of Vienna Medical School under Karl von Rokotansky opposed the cell theory and said, no, no, this is wrong. This is like maybe intuitively wrong. It's just conceptually wrong. The, the cells are not the primal, um, the primal unit of life. The, the cells are controlled by their environment. And he put more emphasis on the capillary bed, and that still remains in uh, German medicine to some extent. And that's why, for instance, um, um, ginkgo was developed as a drug because it's to increase peripheral circulation. And it's it's really kind of more of a drug in a way. It's on the border of urban drug. But so that's the thinking behind that. And they value that. That, that at one point maybe still was the most prescribed drug in the world. But at any rate, um, uh, so um, they opposed the, the School of Vienna, they opposed this for generation after generation until finally Pissinger came along and he proved that cell theory was wrong and that the holistic and that the regulatory system is in the environment, the internal environment around the cells. And it is, um, uh, and that means that the basic premise of holism is scientific now, is proved. It's like reductionism. Yeah, it's fine. You can reduce everything all you want. But the, uh, on a regulatory level, reductionism is completely overthrown. It, the smallest particles do not regulate what happens. They are regulate, regulated from above. And, you know, they're not regulate, regulated by our brains or our, I mean, unless you're some yogi or something, or by our, our nervous system. They are, there, there are several regulatory levels down. They are regulated by the uh, ground regulatory system in the matrix. And I, I don't think I mentioned yet for, for our audience that, that this is, that there's a charge. Did I say there's a charge on, on the polymers? Okay. It sits, it sits there and then some glucose comes in through the, the, um, the capillaries it's fairly simultaneously throughout the body. The glucose starts coming in from what we ate, for instance, and then there's a reaction and um, the polymers everywhere react and send signals to the cells like, oh, more blood sugar coming in. Like, yeah, you can reproduce. We've been holding you back on that. We can grow some tissue, yeah, <laughs> and uh, generate some energy. Um, so, or, or maybe, yeah, there's some good quality protein coming along. Let's make some muscle. Let's make some collagen. And uh, so, um, so this is the ground regulatory system and it completely controls the cells. The cells do not, they are not, independent um, uh, units of life. They are, they are part of a collective ruled by this collective brain. The brain of the cells is not inside the brain. And as I, I said, uh, we think of the nucleus, oh, it's like, our, it's like the brain, but no, the nucleus is the reproductive organ and the brain is outside. So it's like, again, a projection of human life on the cell. We get our brains and our, our genitals mixed up 
and we project that <laughs> onto the cells as well. So, so it's like, well, <laughs> um, so that's kind of the overview. I, I should say, so the capillaries bring in the material, the cells are, are there's some going, there's white cells, there's various immune cells in the matrix that are floating around free. Then there's these tissues, there's actually a serous membrane. And so there may be some crossover. It's very interesting. The, they found that the organs, each organ has its own matrix compartment, which, which justifies the doctrine of um, organ specificity or yeah. organ independence, which we have in Paracelsus. We really have that pretty broad. I mean, even modern doctors, cardiologists, gastroenterologists, they, they kind of practice the same way. But we have the, the doctrine of organ specificity or organ affinity where the herb has an affinity where uh, Chelidonium dandelion, Chelidonium, uh, they would be liver, gallbladder remedies, um, right. you know, or milk thistles, say. Yeah. 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 They so work more on the hepatic system um, rather yeah. than focusing more broadly or, or non specifically. They tend to be very localized. So, yeah. you know, Matthew, one thing that comes up while I'm listening to all of this is that, you know, well, first of all, let's, let's go back to the very primordial ocean of single-celled organisms, okay? Because yeah. it seems like those single-celled eukaryotic bacteria, as they are attempting to survive in a wild and chaotic environment of this primordial ocean, and again, we don't even know that that's actually technically correct, but that's the best that we can conceive of with our theories and understanding yeah, at the moment. Right. So if if that's the way that it happened and they're trying to exist in this wildly erratic space, they, they form this slime as you referred to it as, would that be, would it be fair to refer to that as a type of biofilm, uh, you know, single celled eukaryotic biofilm? Yeah, I would say that. And in fact, there's quite a continuous, a contiguous relationship between biofilms on our, mucosa or you know now it's right. proved even biofilms are floating in the bloodstream i mean there's just biofilms everywhere yeah and 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 they signal and have a relationship back and forth across the cell membrane to the matrix actually and the matrix is a big slime is a kind of a biofilm in its own it's the inner biome i guess you'd say yeah so that is true so yeah. that's very interesting so it seems like as these single-celled organisms eventually evolve, you know, there's, there's more different types of bacteria and eukaryotes, archaea, for instance, fungi, other things that start to exist, yeah. they form, you know, another type of biofilm, they would form, you know, what we would now refer to as a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast, and possibly yeah. archaea as well. So that's very interesting. But now what you're showing and what you're, you're representing in your book is that multicellular life and tissues that are composed of multicellular life are also beginning to do a very similar thing. They're behaving in a similar way, is that right? With their ex extracellular matrix as yeah. a type of biofilm for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah an interpreter, a protection and an interpreter of external uh, material. Yeah, and uh, Pissinger, the discoverer of this, he, he, he said, people say, well, how about the single cell floating in the ocean? That doesn't have a, uh, a um, regulatory system. He said, well, that's seawater. <laughs> regulatory system and actually uh to some extent these these critters probably they floated near uh, uh almost certainly uh rocks on the edge of the ocean sunlight right. beating down 
muds and things like that. Um, there was, you know, there was already an environment somewhat like a, a, a biofilm. Uh, and, um, but with seawater as a regulatory system, uh, you and I know the importance of the cell salts and of Schussler cell salts and, and which, you know, really, what can you say, uh, uh, rubs elbows with the whole alchemical worldview. Uh, Very much so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's really interesting. You know, when people always talk to me about, well, how do you know that bacteria form inside of water and, and that that's the way that life evolves? Well, within the alchemical corpus, we actually have what are known as the waterworks. So, you know, and you may be familiar with some of this where we'll take rainwater and then typically let it to ferment uh, just in an aerobic environment. So it just sits there for, you know, the, the longer you let it sit, the better. But then it just starts to form all of these colonies of what look like to our eye biofilm until you start to put it underneath the microscope. And then you can see there are dozens of different types of organisms that have actually <laughs> evolved from this, this rainwater. And yeah. then what we do is we take that and we distill it out into elemental fractions first. So, you know, the, if we have one liter of water, the first 250 mils that come over is fire, the next is air, the next is water, the next is earth. And what you're left with in your flask is, and you have to be sure not to distill this to a dryness, is all of your eukaryotic life, you know, that could be bacteria, could be fungi, could be, you know, whatever was creating that, that biomass inside of the flask and causing the fermentation of water. And you know, then we have a, another series of distillations where we take those 12 or those, those four fractions of water and distill each of those into thirds, which give us all 12 signs of the zodiac. So like the first that comes over from fire would be the sulfur of fire, which we call cardinal fire in astrology, right? Aries. Yeah. And then we would have fixed fire come over next, which would be uh, actually, sorry, we would have mutable come over next, which would be the mercury of fire. And that would be Sagittarius. And then finally fixed fire would come over and that would be your Leo fraction. And once you do that to all, all of your fractions, you have 12 different fractions, then you can add that microbial life from the first distillation that was retained in your flask. You can add that back to various combinations. Let's say you take you know, cardinal fire, fixed water, mutable earth, add those together in equal portions and add that bacteria back. Well, now you start to get a very interesting evolution of life happening. And according to the different proportions of each of those fractions that you add back, you can actually evolve plant life, mineral life, animal life even. Um, oh. And each time that they live their life cycle, you can take that and calcine it, add it right back to that same fraction. And it wow. gets more and more and more and more evolved to the point where, you know, at first you can see some plankton or something if you're working the vegetative path. And then over time, it starts to grow more like a moss. And then it will start to grow out of that moss more like a, a, what we would consider to be like a really small herbaceous yeah. plant. And wow. you, you can keep doing this and doing this and doing this and keep seeing the evolution of, uh, of life from nothing other than water to begin with. So for the alchemist mind, it's not that big of a stretch. I think for a lot of people who aren't familiar with that though, that's like, how do you get from point A to point B? Well, okay. I can sure see the connection to, of the matrix to what you're talking about. Yes. Uh, another, so really uh, Pissinger was one genius that I, I um, chronicled and his work. And another was, you may be familiar with Gerald Pollock, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Up there where Sage lives. Um, so Gerald uh, worked on, you know, the hydrophilic. So uh, water on a hydrophilic surface, um, the sun beats on it and it creates a different type of water, actually, and uh, structured water. And so this is the alchemical dew, of course, the dew collected off of plants. Yeah. And one could make it more efficiently off of rainwater off the roof or something. But but uh, so, yes, we have a different kind of water. And this is the water that life always needs and and uh, uh, thrives in. So, um, yeah, I, I can see why you're starting with rainwater there. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's very interesting because dew water has very similar properties. It's just harder to get a hold of, <laughs> right, you right. Know, especially to get it without having any sort of determination you know you talked about the hydrophilic layer especially on plants and grasses and you know things yeah. like uh yeah. uh what's it called alchemilla vulgaris uh, for ladies mantle yeah it, it yeah. has a specific affinity for holding on to this through little hydrophilic tentacular hairs that it has so um but then it's it's uh essentially determined to the vegetable kingdom where you know collecting dew in just glass so that it doesn't have any sort of affinity to it is much harder than rain where you can just set a big glass carboy yeah. out in the rain with a big funnel or something so yeah. yeah you know so this is this is really interesting to me though matthew because this extracellular matrix let's go to, back to the part where you said that it does have an electrical charge now yeah. That means that it has to be interacting, of course, with electromagnetism and electrochemistry, meaning yeah. that it is in some way interfacing with both the nervous system as well as the endocrine systems of the body. Yeah. This is very interesting because, you know, th this ties in so many different aspects of the body and, and its electromagnetic components, which are today really not very well understood. So some of what you're talking about and suggesting is that all of the cells in the body in one way or another are at least interfacing with electromagnetism, which is, in, in my opinion, something that really needs to be looked at because that would indicate that individual organs, individual systems are alive, not just from the cellular level, of course, but that their their lowest common denominator with all of the rest of creation is that they're electromagnetically alive <laughs> they're given this kind of spirit right yeah yeah yes um it's interesting so in the book so really there are only there's only one book in two different translations available for studying the matrix that's pissinger and his co-worker harmit heine and one is published by North Atlantic Books, the other one by Hogg Publishing in uh, Stuttgart or Germany somewhere. And um, they're kind of slightly different, but the same book. Um, I bought both of them. And um, so there were no other books on the Matrix. There are some very good papers, but there were no other books. So I wrote this book in order for uh, to communicate this to the holistic world. Uh, I can't remember why. Why did I get off on this? Um, I might as well go, go on uh, just some yeah. history there. The book, um, because nobody really, this was not known information to the the holistic world either. Um, here, here was this incredible finding, and even the holistic people didn't know about it. Uh, one of the scientists I quoted, she says, um, "The problem with the matrix is it's uh, very difficult to visualize. That is a big problem, and it's and otherwise, then you have trying to work with." Um, 
with um, non-linear thinking too, you're having to think holistically uh, about it too. So it's very hard to visualize. And uh, I know what I was gonna talk about, yes. And so um, Pissinger and Heine, um, they talk about meeting with some anthroposophical doctors and they, they concluded, they kind of jointly concluded the bunch of them that, that the matrix charge that this uh, charge on the on the polymers was essentially equivalent to the the, the vital force the or the etheric body yeah uh, because as steiner would talk about it so um yeah so now whether that's true or not um this is a it is a electrical bio bio um uh electrical magnetic force and 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 it shows the possible sensitivity to to life on that level a tremendous sensitivity uh, which would explain astrology, etc. And of course, the, this whole electromagnetic um, field has been ignored. Do you know he's down in your area, Arthur Furstenberg, in the book um, uh, "The Invisible Rainbow: The History of Humanity and Electricity"? Yeah, yeah. in fact, uh, I've got that book upstairs. I've been reading a lot about that over the last few months. Yeah, yeah, he's an amazing character, and he uh, and and so I mean that just proves electromagnetic frequencies are completely um, are real and um, for better and for worse and um, <laughs> both the ones coming from both the ones coming from outer space creating these four elements etc of water uh, and um, the ones made by humanity etc. Yeah. So and it makes sense that the matrix would be extremely sensitive to that. I I would have to guess um, just because. Uh, now we think of, oh, well, here's the edge of our body. How does, how is the electromagnetic frequency going to get in into that? Well, you, you look at, you know, you hold your hand up to the, to the sun or light bulb and, and, the, and the light shines through. I mean, that is getting through that electromagnetic energy is getting through us all the time. Yeah. And therefore there is a sensitivity and that's actually what's renewing that, that, uh, special water that Gerald Pollack, uh, discovered the, H3O slash H2O2 and uh, the semi-crystalline um, water of the internal of organic life forms. So, so um, it's constantly being renewed by, by the, the sun and, um, and also it's being it's sensitized in all the time by, you know, by these electromagnetic frequencies, which, which include the astrological and um, uh, I, I used to just believe in the principle of, uh, you know, as above, so below, and like treats yeah. like in some sort of uh, philosophical sense only, but now I'm forced to believe, you know, in the actual <laughs> little rays sent out by the planets and yeah. be picked up by us. <laughs> so, you well, know. you know, that's, that's a really cool and important kind of discussion too, because, you know, um, you and I were chatting before we actually started recording about ancestrale or you know the one of the entia, primary entia of disease of paracelsus saying that the cause of disease of the stars is a main thing yeah he he even went so far as to actually coin the term astral body um and yeah. to talk about the, he was the first person in history that we have in the west to actually talk about those ideas even though they were made manifest in other other ways i guess in india long before he had talked about them um, in the West, it, it was a completely novel idea. And in this regard, you know, I'm always explaining to people, listen, various proximities of other planets to our planet 
are going to put various different types of stresses. Okay, so if we if we do agree, not everybody agrees this these days. Okay, the world is rapidly changing in its information and who buys into what narratives. But yeah. as modern science currently stands, there are four major forces that uh, are physical forces that that you know at least we were taught in school. So you have strong nuclear, weak nuclear, electromagnetic, and gravitational force. Mm -hmm. These you know, if Jupiter ends up coming relatively close to Earth in its orbit, then we have magnetospheric, we have electromagnetic, and we also have gravitational forces, stresses put on our planet that are going to displace our gravitational attraction, our electromag, pardon me, our electromagnetic field of the planet. And if that happens, sunlight in certain areas where that displacement is the least is going to penetrate deeper. Where it's the most, it won't penetrate nearly as much. And so we can see that just on a purely physiological level here, how solar forces based on other astronomical bodies can actually influence us from an electromagnetic perspective, because we are dependent as life forms on this planet, we are dependent upon a consistent impulse of the Earth's electromagnetism in order for all of the electromagnetic components like our nervous system, endocrine system, extracellular matrix, et cetera, anything that has electrical resistance is going to end up reacting to that. Even our computers do for Christ's sake, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, I think that it's really interesting where this is tying over because within the next, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years, as more of this information that's in your book gets out and people start thinking about the ramifications of it, we might yeah. have more information and more basis to go on rather than just throwing the astrological baby out with the bathwater, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, I wrote this book for the alternative um, holistic, more of the medical community. I'm seeing immediately the um, alchemical community fits in uh, even more perhaps. And um, I, I wrote it so that we would feel that yes, our, that, um, holistic medicine is scientifically justified. Now, not that we have to have that, but it is nice. Yeah. And one one woman who interviewed me, she said, I was crying when I was reading it because she it just meant so much to her to be justified that way. Now, you know, I was kind of a 10th generation heretic. I, di I didn't really care that much. About <laughs> it, I feel like my family, I was raised Quaker. My family were like uh, non-muggles out in some other uh, dimension. That, exactly. Uh, <laughs> we're still trying to it's like uh yeah we don't totally get it all the time and um <laughs> but uh so so i don't feel that need to prove it so much but i like doing that and i felt and the thing is it's important to know about the matrix and how it works and so on and and so first who's going to pick up on this first i think it's going to be the alternative community because the um regular scientific community has pretty much like they've named all you know 357 different um, particles that that they can find that are normally found in the human matrix etc all that's been figured out but they don't consider it as a whole functioning together to any great extent there there are some of them that do get it but but not very many and they don't publish papers there just are not papers there's nothing but those two books or one book uh split into two um kind of a dominion situation <laughs> 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 he even has two authors, Pissinger and Heine. Yeah. And um, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, 
so I wrote this for us, for the alternative holistic community. And I'm hoping in 10, 15 years that someone plagiarizes it or redoes <laughs> it. I mean, because I did all the work to, I, I'm very good at putting things in an understandable form as a writer. And, and I tried to make this very, very, I tried to get over what that scientist rightly said, hard to visualize. I tried to visualize it for the reader. And so it's, it's going to take maybe a year or two for a person to really kind of internalize it. And, you know, you know how that is. Yeah. I mean, you didn't grow up and in, in, they didn't teach you um, alchemy in second grade or something. So you had exactly. to learn, learn it. And the same here. And we'll internalize it and we'll start using it in our conversations. And then they're going to have to catch up. Those scientists, we can look at them and say, oh, you don't know about the matrix and the holistic uh, regulation of the body. <laughs> so... Yeah, so that's uh, my ulterior motive, but but it is so important too. And um, one thing it helped teach me just to be a little herbal about it: the importance of um, mucilages, or which are which contain polysaccharides, which are the same thing as these polymers, um, which are glucosaminoglycans, is their technical name. So of mm -hmm. course we don't use that, but. But um, so so the the slime from plants is a good source, and sometimes we need to coat and soothe our membranes with that. And that, <clears throat> and it turns out the mortar between the cells, the like uh, the cement between the cell cells, um, uh, lining the small intestine is <clears throat> is made up of these um, of polymers of the 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 um, gags the like, the glucosaminoglycans or the um, uh, polysaccharides and and so we need to sometimes tuck point we need to you know do a little bit of cement work there on the cell wall and um, <clears throat> actually it was early proved as late as the early as the late 90s that the that um, um, glucosamine sulfate which is just a slurry of 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 uh, poly of animal origin um, <clears throat> um, uh, gags here that it that it can penetrate through the through these um gaps between the the cells because it is um because it's the same material so uh, also so this stuff can get into the matrix and have an effect or into joints etc yeah and that's that is actually really interesting matthew because for what i'm hearing here is that polysaccharide rich herbs so let, let's talk about reishi for instance is a reishi reishi oh. decoction you know you have tons of polysaccharides and most yeah. of our polypores yeah this is this can actually be used in somewhat bioidentical ways is what i'm hearing yeah. um, to fill in gaps in cell uh, extracellular matrix fluid is that true uh yeah well that would be one thing that um well although actually um it sometimes you know the matrix tells uh, cells to migrate to that spot. There's like a bald spot. We need some cells there. Sometimes maybe like you're saying, yes, we need some more, or we need to thicken or densify the polysaccharides in the matrix there. And sometimes it needs to be in the uh, cracks between the cells. And sometimes perhaps we're also, of course, some of these are probiotics, you know, but. Actually, with something like Rishi, so this is kind of interesting. I hadn't thought this way until you brought it up. That's why these conversations are so great. Like, like I kind of thought of, you know, marshmallow or okra kind of as not very intelligent, um, just a 
mucilage that you know you slap on your whitewash on the wall or something um <laughs> but something like rishi we really have a profound intelligence in that in those poly polysaccharides and so we could really be rebuilding the matrix not just to be with something like that i'm i'm inclined to think not just to be able to run the organism really well but maybe to be more open to spiritual uh, or soul or you know or vital yeah. or cosmic um, signaling or signals uh, because this is the sensitivity again to emfs and and this is the regulatory system so so that is really that's really bing <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah. really interesting you know and you were talking about in the extracellular matrix and correct me if i'm wrong um i'll have to read the book and really digest it as soon as it comes out in order to really get a full comprehension i'm just going off of what i've heard and what i think i'm picking up on is yeah. that there are certain white blood cells inside of that extracellular matrix as well right which yeah. means in part lymphocytes and yep. so reishi for instance as an immune adaptogen can help with that as well it's just yep. interesting because all of these kind of subcomponents in the reductionist model that we've looked at are starting to in so many ways be reconfigured and we're realizing that there are other ways of explaining the same type of actions that the reductionist model says oh this herb has this because of this <laughs> and they postulate it this way but if we look at it from slightly different stance we can see that perennially it appears to be true regardless of what stance you have, whether something, whether you know about the extracellular matrix or whether we go back 3000 years into prehistory and we find that yeah. people are taking chaga and reishi anyway, because it benefits our wellness. It's just interesting to see things that are perennially healthy for us are, yeah. they, they will always be here and they'll stand the test of time. Largely those are, you know, for, for the human component, herbal materials, you know, herbal and animal allies as medicines. This is actually a perfect time for us to take just a sure. short break. We'll go ahead and when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about uh, some herbalism and astro herbalism to see where the conversation takes us. Are you looking for the highest quality herbal supplements and remedies for your home apothecary? Or maybe you're looking to take your spellcraft, magical workings or offerings to the next level. Whatever your reasons might be, we have hundreds of herbal spagyric items available, and every purchase supports our work and helps bring spagyria into the light of the modern world. Here at the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, we produce dozens and dozens of items of spagyric pharmacopoeia each year, even though we only need a few samples for our research purposes. So the remaining quantities are available to the public in our online spagyric apothecary. Only the highest quality natural, organic, biodynamic, and ethically wildcrafted materials go into our products, and every purchase you make helps fund our research. As an Alchemiculture podcast listener, you can get your hands on our professionally crafted small batch spagyric products for 15% off using coupon code LISTEN15. So go ahead and browse our enormous selection of products and get yourself something new or pick up one of your favorite products today. Visit phoenixaurelius.org slash apothecary and enter coupon code LISTEN15 to take 15% off your entire order. And thanks in advance for supporting our research. Uh, while we were on the break, Matthew and I were talking about Earthwise Herbal and I said, you know, one thing I really want to chat about because these are probably your best-selling books is where did you get the inspiration to write Earthwise Herbal? 
And for those of you who haven't read them, they are spectacular. You have one on more modern herbs, and then you also have an earthwise on more ancestral and, and ancient herbs. Um, how did you get the idea to, to write both compendiums and which one, I'm, I'm not familiar, I should probably know this, but which one did you write first? Well, I can't remember now, although the copyright would tell us, but- um, Fair enough, I'll research that while you, you tell us a little bit more about the inspiration then. Yeah, but if I had to bet, it would be the um, North America, the more recent, because there's the herbs I use the most and really love. <clears throat> um, and, you know, kind of grew up using from my late 20s on in the herb store. Yeah, so um, when I, oh, this is astrological. When I was 20, I still was a little bit of a skeptic about astrology. And one of my 19, one of my high school friends was reading my horoscope and she said, uh, you will never be satisfied until you've written a book. And I immediately knew it was totally true. She said, um, Mars and Capricorn in the third house. And it was like at that moment, astrology was proved for me. And I knew that was true. I knew that. And I knew. And that book was the book of verbal wisdom, which I had to write to show kind of the consciousness of herbs uh, the best to the extent I could. I wasn't trying to do the consciousness of hallucinogens, but but just herbs. They have a personality, and that personality shines through through the law of correspondence or the doctrine of signatures, down to the physical uses and the external signatures. And so that was the book that I had to write. And it was another astrologer. It was Judith Hill. Actually, I was visiting her, and, and uh, she said, "You're so relaxed. Like, did you like have you completed your life mission?" And I said. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I have. Yeah. When I wrote that, when I finished that book, it's like, oh, now I can do whatever I want. But, you know, my life has just consisted in expanding on that, yeah. that book. But, um, but again, it was an astrologer. I mean, who could pick up on that? You know, she said, yeah, you kind of lead the life of Riley, you know, like you're not, <laughs> not driven, even your internal spiritual drive is, you're kind of mellow about that as well as, you know, external. And it was so true. And so I, I, you know, if astrology wasn't true, still the astrologers are the people who really pick up on character and destiny and fate and your fulfillment of your profoundest needs and everything. Of course, we know that astrology is for real, but but it <clears throat> they are just experts at reading that level. So so yeah. I have to give credit there, and and it was so uh, insightful. And um, <clears throat> I know since that time, that was five or six years ago, that. She's pretty much felt like she's um, reached where she has fulfilled her destiny too, and is more relaxed about that because it, it was kind of eating. I, I shouldn't talk about somebody maybe, but it, it's not a bad thing. It's just she she's more relaxed. She's ah yes, gotten her 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 uh, story out that she needs to do. You yeah, know? well, which is so important. I mean, she's a torchbearer of a tradition yeah. that right. could possibly have died out if not for her. If you take a look yeah. at modern 21st century sources and teachers of, yeah. of this, you know, especially medical astrology tradition, yeah, she, she's it. Yep, yeah, yeah. And that of course is a deep important part of our tradition. Paracelsus did astrological medicine. Um, yeah. uh, they say Hippocrates and those guys did, but I'm not sure that they did it quite the way we did, we do, but um, yeah, medical astrology is a crucial part. And although, as I mentioned, and when we were talking ahead of time, I don't do a lot of charts with my work with, with clients with herbs, <clears throat> I do occasionally, I still use a reference system, you know, I'm still thinking, well, the whole organ specificity that some that an organ has its own kind of intelligence that fits the astrological model. 
and um, uh, in different ways. And then, you know, I think of the mints as, oh, they're so Libra and they're billowy, beautiful flowers, you know, and, and when I'm looking, and certainly you can tell scorpionic plants, you know, they kind of look like a snake or a scorpion or something yeah. and look toxic or they're purple or, you know, orange and black or something. Yeah. And <laughs> so, so you, um, Oh, which reminds me of my neighbor. So I had some funny neighbors just aside here. <clears throat> Sam, he was six seven. He's like three hundred pounds. And um, he said, "Yeah, I I want to plant black lilies in the yard, and and uh, I, I want to plant orange uh, lilies and and black irises too." Paracelsus himself would be attracted into incarnation right there, and Nietzsche <laughs> and Schopenhauer too, but. But I suppose it would scare the little bunny rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you got a pretty colorful neighbor going on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that definitely right. Yeah, but at any rate, so uh, astrological thinking uh, has been very important to me, um, even though I don't always state that in the in the books I write. But so the book of herbal wisdom, and then with the Earthwise Herbal, I just felt like you know my model was homeopathy. These really well-detailed um, uh, materia medicus, but the difference between homeopathy and herbalism is, well, well, they look for the personality too, but they don't see it like, they don't use the doctrine of signatures. They don't see it so thoroughly. I found, um, and actually by the time I was finishing, I think it was the first of those two volumes, by the time I was finishing it, it was like, I could just read the kind of what an herb was for, how it all fit together. And that was not so much, from the sig the signatures help and that was often that did give me my initial insights there but like you know if something has a mucilage astringent um volatile oils it's like i could just predict what it was going to do you know yeah. um and that so so that uh really got me to a level where i felt like i i this is going to be a very good book that really um does tell us what so i could write about something i remember it was acacia i've never used acacia but uh, the here's the ingredients oh well i i can understand why that's does what it does and then it, you can write a good uh, account um <clears throat> actually Dioscorides, the uh, greek uh, uh -huh. um, roman he's like that he, he just he just knows it so well he he was buying drugs and using them for the roman armies so um uh, but at any rate, so so those are very good books. And then finally, I wanted a repertory mimicking homeopathy again. And the truth is that, that the repertory was constructed independently of the symptomology, the symptoms collected in in the Materia Medica, in the, in the Earthwise Herbal, um, because it just was too much work to go back and try and extract all that, at least yeah. to me. And also, I wanted to homeopathy values clinical symptoms. And I wanted to take symptoms that were more clinical, not that they all are, or just very characteristic in the herbal tradition. And the Earthwise Herbal has really proved itself. I have a friend, my co-author on that, David um, uh, David Ryan, um, he's, he and I were working on a computer program for this because the homeopaths. Oh, like that. that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, Zeus, Z-U, oh, Zeus software. Germany or Italy or somewhere there, um, they are going to publish it. But um, then he and I are going to work on trying to integrate it more with the Earthwise Herbals and work with the symptoms and and just get that even more. And 
in uh, he is indefatigable. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of work. Um, and, well, I've moved yeah. on to other things. So, um, yeah. By the way, you did yeah. publish the uh, Earthwise Herbal of the Old World Herbs first. That came out in 2008, and then New World was the year following in 2009. Well, I lost my bet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You lost your own bet. You're the author, man. <laughs> not, not great to lose your own bet there. But, you know, regardless of that, the, the books are absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here with the Earthwise Herbal Repertory right here. And this, this is a really fun book. You know, I was flipping through it the other day. I had a friend over who was suffering with hemorrhoids. And I said, well, you know what, we, we should actually just flip through this to see what it says. And uh, the first thing that came up was uh, horse chestnut, you know, um, which was really cool because here in the Spagyric lab, we do have some horse chestnut, but it, in... Uh, in its full potency form, you wouldn't want to take it. It needs to be homeopathically succused. Um, okay. And otherwise, you know, it, it's probably has greater toxin quality than, <laughs> than what you might want. So yeah, it was, it was very cool. And then, you know, there was a list of about 12 other herbs that we have and different ways of applying it. Do you apply it topically? And then also what it's used for in terms of uh, you know, it's action and how it might help with that particular condition. And so, you know, it was, it was really fun actually just being able to go through that and be like, oh yeah, we've got half these herbs in stock. Let's go ahead and just whip something up for you. You know, witch hazel, of course, uh, came up in there and a few other things. So yeah, I, I think that it's, it's an excellent addition to any herbalist library or even a home uh, an aspiring herbalist, you know, I call them sometimes mom herbalists or parent herbalists where, you know, you got kids and you just, you need to have a quick reference guide to know what to do and what you can, what you can call up and cook up here at home to help take care of the issues that arise. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some effort at differential symptom, differential diagnosis or differential evaluation that, that one, uh, oh, say bleeding hemorrhoids, that would be, um, right. Yeah. I think Biden's um, itching hemorrhoids more in the rhubarb family um, that I learned from personal experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> we got a plant called R Smart for a very oh, good wow. reason. <laughs> now, now that's an appropriately named herb, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the knotweeds. And so the knotweeds in general have a, are good there for the itchiness. And then, you know, you have other, a pain, sharper. I don't know if I put that in there, mullen. Um, and uh, that came from a scientific source. So I wasn't quite as sure about it. I, I liked the empirical um, uh, herbal tradition. So, yeah, yeah, I think even St. John's wort had made its way in, in for that particular listing. And of course, that would help with kind of topical numbing a little bit. Yeah. Analgesic kind of. Yeah. And I would say, no, I'm not sure I said it then, but a very sensitivity, nerve sensitivity, people that are just mm. usually sensitive. And you could not be sensitive elsewhere, but sensitive there. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Especially with condition like that, uh, it could be especially sensitive, even if you're not sensitive elsewhere. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, that was, that was uh, just a great example that I actually had of pulling this off the shelf. And this was maybe a week ago at best. So I, I thought that that was kind of cool. So 
with that being said, um, you're you're still using herbs. You're you're clinically seeing, you know, oh. clients and and things like that regularly. Is that true? Well, yeah, I, only about ten people a week or so. I'm I'm on Threather uh, because I teach so much and I don't try to um, advertise myself. I'm not really that interested. And you know, people call me and I say or contact me more likely by email and and it's like, well, I try to find them on herb. if there's a good herbalist in their area. Um, you know, uh, then that's good. But, um, but so I'm not, you know, pursuing that as I once did. It's exhaustive. When you're seeing clients, your back is to the wall, sort of Damocles over your head in a way. It's like, you got to get results. And, you know, uh, gee, I mean, and they don't always get back to you. I remember one time, so I go to help somebody at their house. Oh yeah, you helped my son 10 years ago. You know, we were about, he had pneumonia, we're about to go to the hospital. He's in Madison, Wisconsin. You helped him over the telephone, uh, suggested Mullen totally took care of the problem. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I never heard back. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not funny how it's so dire for the communication to happen on a one-sided angle when there's a major problem, but not necessarily to let you know that it cleared up. Yeah, right, right. And I do appreciate people to get back with that, yeah. Oh yeah, me too. It helps the case studies and helps me understand what I should be looking at or not be looking at or avoid or incorporate in future cases. So yeah, yeah. critical. So yeah, these days you mostly find yourself teaching herbalism. Of course, you run your own institute, Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism. Uh, you know, you've got a number of different free offerings on that website. Um, and then you also teach some pretty high level courses as well. Yeah, well, I am co-teaching with uh, Judith Hill right now through the uh, each sign of the zodiac and herbs for each sign or for the conditions. <clears throat> she discovered she has what she calls syndromes for each sign, which is just kind of the dominant patterns, which often have to do with the signs, uh, you know, the signs that are quincunx, the sign that's behind, the sign that's <clears throat> um, opposite. They will have a kind of oftentimes their problems or they, they generate problems. Well, Aquarius, for instance, has poor circulation in the extremities we find, often pale, and, you know, so there's Leo, the opposite there. So, um, yeah, so, uh, and it has rigidity like um, Capricorn as well, too. So she has the syndromes there, and I try to provide the, <clears throat> the herbs for these different <clears throat> organs um, and, uh, uh, or signs, et cetera, or planets. Um, I do find the, I always love to, um, link the sign the signs and the herbs but i find that the signs and the that the planets and the herbs actually more naturally do um correspond and um this is one of those discoveries where this is not what i wanted i, I wanted to go by the sign and not by the the um, planet yeah. i found that to be the case so so for what that's worth uh do you make your, do, are your spagyric um, um, preparations um, uh, made according to astrological um, events and things? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, um, I don't have a physical copy of it right out front, but I'm actually posting a 2022 calendar. So kind of like before, uh, before the, the episode started, we had kind of talked about you know, medical astrology and how I started off with Judith Hill, but kind of changed the calculations that I was using. 
what I did at one time was I took on uh, probably close to 30 clients as research clients. This was back in 2014 and 2015. And what I would do is I would cast natal comparative charts every day of every single month for 13 entire months. So they were signed on for a 13 month thing. That way I could see them throughout an entire lunar year and chart their cycles and gather a lot of data. And um, I would produce these charts both in tropical Western and then at that time in Vedic um, astrology and be able to see if I could predict for the entire month ahead days where their pre-existing conditions might be particularly problematic or see if based on their natal chart, if there were any patterns that I could see in that chart that would lend themselves to uh, needing to be remedied in one way or the other to alleviate some of those kind of symptomatic complaints that they had. Um, uh, most of them have pre-existing conditions. So that's, that's what I did. And what I found was that there, it was, it was decent. It was maybe like a 50 to 60% accuracy with the tropical astrology, um, with the predictions. And then I would, what I would do after I cast all these was that I would make eight custom spagyric formulations for that individual for that month. And it could be as simple as a single herb, but usually there were multi-herb spagyric formulations that were given to them, one for each day of the week, you know, Monday through, through Sunday, and then one that they took every single day of the week on top of their daily. And yeah. um, we had a really good success with that. We were able to see people that had, you know, uh, schizophrenia and depression issues, manic bipolarity, lots of different psychoaffective disorders were completely ameliorated and in several cases eliminated. Um, but what I ended up seeing about halfway through was that the tropical astrology charts that we were using didn't have the amount of accuracy to them in the predictions that I would be able to formulate properly. Whereas there is close to about an 80% um, viability in the predictions based on the Vedic. So I thought, well, hell, let's go with that. And I went with that and then, you know, I started getting into the International Astronomical Union stuff and comparing what they're showing around the ecliptic to the Vedic chart. And I just, I mean, it basically almost caused me an aneurysm, Matthew, because I was like, oh, it's so different. Like where the planets actually are and where we're saying that they are, are different. And so I tried to create all sorts of new charts and tried to work out the mathematics and it was very hard for me. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, I ran into this guy named Athen Cimenti, brilliant astrologer, by the way, absolutely brilliant. He runs this uh, company called masteringthezodiac.com. And uh, he just found this one particular software called the Capricorn, what's it called? Prometheus Capricorn software, where they offered in there the opportunity to do the 13 zodiac ecliptics, but actually measure each constellation for its actual size. So, you know, as you know, traditional astrology, we say that there's 12 constellations, each of 30 degrees, right? And that makes up our ecliptic. Well, when we look at it astronomically, it's not that simple. Like for instance, Virgo is really huge and Pisces is really huge. Whereas yeah. Libra is this little tiny little thing in the sky, you know, along the ecliptic. Yeah. And so he did some, some calculations, some measurements, and was able to still keep a 360 degree circular chart, but 
was able to show the comparative relationship of the size of each of the constellations, uh, the way that they would actually show up. Mm -hmm. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. So I went back to a couple of my clients. I said, hey, you know, I'm doing some more research. It would be free. Uh, you don't have to pay for it. I'm, I just want to see if I can make up any of the discrepancies in that extra 20% of, of error that I had with my predictions if I were to use this form of astrology. They should said, sure, go ahead, do whatever you want. So I did. I went back and I recast all the charts. And then I, you know, at this point, it was, I already had the data of what they were suffering with at those times and the predictions I had made. So what I did was I just compared this new astrology form, cast the chart, made the predictions as if I normally would, and then compared it to the symptoms they actually had. It was now at about a 97% accuracy rate. And so I went back and I started studying again on a couple more people, maybe another 15 clients over a 13 month period and gathered all of that data. And again, that was about 95 to 97% correct. Um, The things where I couldn't predict what was going on were mostly like arthritis symptoms. And we were able to find that at least one to 3% of the difference that, that I wasn't able to predict had something to do with barometry and barometric pressure. So uh, higher the barometric pressure, the more the pain, you know, you talk to just about any of the old people and they can tell you when a storm's coming because they can feel it in their bones or they start to get tired or whatever. So we were able to account for that discrepancy. And then fast forward uh, a couple of years, I started working with intrinsic data field technology and analyzing, you know, when I see my clients, I, I find out which of the five entia are affecting them first as kind of a macro causation. Um, Because it does no good to apply just an herbal remedy that isn't astronomically made if their cause of disease is ancestrale. Just Mm -hmm. as well, you know, if it's an enspirituale issue, there's no sense throwing an herb at it at all. You have to get rid of the spirit that is causing the issue or the electromagnetism or whatever. So anytime they'd have ancestrale, I would puzzle for years. It took about three years of me trying, you know, this and that and everything else to try and figure out how do I eliminate their ends astrale issue. And what I found out, it's not true with every one of the planets, but most of the main planets, especially our main afflictors of Mars and, and Saturn, when they are in the birth chart, you know, the, the here's your ideal astral template is the birth chart. This person will experience a disease corresponding to Saturn or Mars when at any given point in time, it's at a semi-sextile or a square to their natal position. Hmm. So this was something that, you know, I had never heard of before where you take, you know, obviously we try and understand like, okay, the disease happens, you know, the, the, it's present in their natal chart, this thing, and then we'll try and perform an astrological judgment of the time when, when something happened and try and draw causation. But I was actually able to chart time over time over time, different for every different planet, of course, how disease would happen based on their actual natal chart and the comparative chart of any given day or any given point in time and started to see that there were definitive relationships there so now the way that i work with herbs and astrology in in my practice uh, it started with a very conventional way like uh, our buddy sagea for instance the almost identical that's the way i started off uh, doing things was very much so based on the Renaissance thing. But when you go back to Paracelsus, he, he hated the astrology of the time. He hated the tropical chart. He 
he used astrology, but he did it in a completely different way. He even told the astrologers of the time that he was going to cast their phlebotomy tables and their astrology into the Sea of Pilatus. <laughs> you know, he, he was very cantankerous about it. Yeah, so when I started looking more into that and, and approaching it from that angle, I started to see that there were ways where I could definitively eliminate that ends astrology, but I couldn't do it using tropical Western or Vedic or even tropical or uh, even modern Western sidereal through a 12 sign system uh, or an equal house system where it's, you know, all 30 degrees each for each constellation. The only way that I was actually able to do this, well, there's two ways. One is to take the actual declination uh, and the, the astronomical coordinates of the planets in their natal chart and cast a talisman with that energy uh, and mm -hmm. give it to them or to be able to take this particular form of astrology's coordinates. Um, so, you know, it might be like 43 degrees Virgo, for instance. And most astrologers say, well, there's only 30 degrees Virgo. And it's like, well, if you take into account how big Virgo is, that's not true. There, there's only a few degrees of Ophiuchus, for instance. There's only a few degrees of Libra, but there's like 45 degrees almost of Virgo. And Pisces is almost the same in the sky as well. So you know, I started to use that system and it covered all of the discrepancies and it started to take care of the ancestrality of my clients. So it, telling this to most astrologers though is, you know, if they're not open-minded, they just kind of get mad at me and, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <clears throat> yeah, you know, and even in Judith Hill, Judith Hill's book, which I owe her so much because, you know, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have got into medical astrology in the first place, actually. Or I would have been interested in it, but had no guideposts. Yeah, right. So, um, but in the beginning of her book, you know, she makes a strong argument that is maybe not so scientifically sound about the relationship of Aries starting on uh, spring equinox and talking about that being an astronomical observance and she makes a strong case that tropical astrology is the only thing that really works for this system and my experience is I take the exact same things that she teaches about the signs and the degrees and the afflictions and I just apply it to the different calculations and put it to scrutiny in a clinical environment where I was split testing this versus this versus this and I, I've come to slightly different conclusions. So I would love to talk with her one of these days about all of those things, but at the same time, it's a delicate issue for me because I don't ever want to go to somebody that I owe so much to and say, you know, I'm seeing that, you know, it's not exactly wrong. It's just, there, there might be a different system. Do you have any other way of explaining my results or, you know, things like that? It's, but it's a delicate thing with most astrologers. I've been cast under the bust and uh, Boston uh -huh. just called a, a complete nutter on multiple occasions. And of course, it doesn't help that I wear, you know, Viking clothes and wizard hats and whatever else. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't necessarily help with the credibility all the time, but. Well, uh, astrologers are, you know, Uranian, uh, Uranus's children and that uh, they shouldn't care about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know from talking to Judith, she places a great for, for her, um, the you know the grand man of the zodiac that that the signs are regions really for her which i had a very hard time adapting to because um 
no herb that I know, virtually no herb treats a region. Um, yeah. You know, they just don't have affinities that way, but she can, you know, pull a tremendous um, reading out of using the regions that way. So, so she even uses it differently than I would think about it. And um, I've had to um, go with my uh, tail between my legs some on some of my ideas, which makes sense herbally or medically, but don't fit that system. Um, uh, so, and talking about regions, that does fit the Greek model. I, are you familiar with um, Robert Schmidt's work at all? The, the um, uh, Greek astrology, or it would come down, it's more famous through Chris Barron's um, book, but um, Robert did all the original research. And there's a Robert H. Schmidt astrology, dot com uh, website or something like that look I'll it up that it. out yeah yeah no he translated all the original greek um texts and nobody else has touched you know most of these texts um or yeah, he was a tremendous uh, translator i mean he was a greek scholar and knew philosophy knew the whole background plato aristotle um they actually trace the, his wife still lies sadly he died but they've traced um the author, they believe that they can prove that it was Eudoxus, the mathematician who lived kind of partway between Plato and Aristotle. And uh, he was a physician. And I even suggested to Ellen, his wife, that, that astrology evolved perhaps as a medical system um, very predominantly. Uh, Robert said, well, it evolved at least as a cosmological system. We can't tell if in the first generation they were actually using it for divination and stuff like that. But um, but getting back to the original Greek um, texts, you do find a lot of stuff that's changed over the centuries. And you do see how, how the Greek astrology becomes on the one hand Ayurvedic and on the other hand, Western astrology. The Ayurvedic, yeah. here's again another one where you'll get criticized by the Ayurvedic. Um, oh, we have star charts that are 5,000 years old. Yeah, exactly. well, the, <laughs> yeah. it was called Babylonia. It was yeah. the Babylonians who observed the stars. You can't find any anything like that in India, people observing the stars for two, 3,000 years before they figured out, well, 2,000 years before they figured out how to predict where the planets would be. So those charts came into India from Greece, but originally from Babylon. Well, at any rate, um, this is the ancestral, uh, the ancestral astrology there, and of course, drawing on on uh, Mesopotamian and Egyptian sources, um, but Eudoxus seems to have put it all together, um, and he was called the last of the Path Pythagoreans for a reason, right. in that he their worldview that he that they were uh, working towards this view of the cosmos as a living animal, quote unquote, or as a living being that that they could predict an animal to them meant something different because they exactly, didn't yeah they you didn't have more like soul the way we would talk about the soul yeah. today yeah it meant that uh anything that moved um animals and souls move and also they didn't have a word that differentiated humans from animals until uh, about a generation before so socrates that they would humans were uh animals that talk versus yeah. Don't so so very different and uh, I mean I'm a, I'm a shamanist um, well that's my my other book we'll have to get onto that but um and so I have a high value for for animals certainly but at any rate um so there's some interesting materials there uh, in fact one thing I want to talk about one thing I learned about from him was the difference between modern speech and ancient speech or oftentimes it's indigenous speech and um, Western cultural speech and so. 
in ancient times, there was a type of speech, he calls it phosis, and a few of the scholars would, would use that word too, but um, phosis means just to describe something, period. You No value judgment, the car went down the street, and then the muffler fell off, you know, and then... Um, uh, so, and, and so it's just descriptive, uh, explanatory. And, and then how do you, how do you expand upon that? They did not use the syllogism. They did not use the if then, um, uh, uh, method, which is the basis of science really, as we'll see in a moment. So if then is a premise and then a test and then a conclusion, and that's the way science is based on. And that did not exist until Plato. Aristotle says that Plato was the first who used logos, logos yeah. for extracting information by setting up syllogisms. So the famous one is, if Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, then Socrates is mortal. Right. And that's a syllogism. Okay, so the way that the, the um, ancient... Uh, the previous to that, we'd have people like Heraclitus, the two individuals, strangely, who use uh, phosic speech ruthlessly and consciously are Heraclitus, the, the dark, and Jesus, actually. And so the two of them speak um, like, so uh, Heraclitus would say, um, this, the, the road up also goes down, um, uh, is also the road down, which is see that's like making stretching your mind as robert would say like you're not just you're talking about a road you make an observation it is true it goes up it has to go down if you're going the other way and and so you know but it has a meaning like yeah well that's that could be like life like i i reach my peak and then i go down or, or like my reputation or the empire or the king um or the economy or whatever and so there's so much like that he also says the um the river, uh, you can't step in the same river twice. Yeah, that's um, true. That's absolutely true because it's constantly flowing. <laughs> it's yeah. constantly changing. Yes. And so and so that's stretching. That's an observation that yet carries you a little further. Okay, so so this is the ancient way of thinking and, and speaking. And they did not uh, reach a, a, a conclusion. You, you did, I mean, you could also... Oh, the same river. Yeah, well, of course, I don't care. You know, you could ignore that. Um, it could not light your light bulb, maybe. Um, be, you know, so there's a voluntary. This type of speech and um, expansion of speech does not um, demand that you agree or do disagree or even notice it. It's your free will. And so versus the syllogism, you are forced to agree. Well, yeah, I, I have to agree Socrates is mortal um, because, you know, A, B, C, it's all lined up. Yeah, it's and more like a mathematical, like a geometric proof in a certain regard. The proof, yeah. And now the danger of this is, see, okay, a whole bunch of people want to agree with that and a whole bunch of people might not, you know. I mean, they have some other premise. Um, well, yeah, but uh, I don't believe in mortality or something, you know, or, or like... Uh, um, not all people are immortal. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, there might be people that have a different experience, but that's a hard syllogism to argue against. But, but at any rate, all of a sudden, you either agree or you disagree. So you have a polarization. You have two parties. You have a right and a wrong. And this characterizes 
Western civilization and society and people going around all the time telling everybody what is right and what is wrong. <laughs> I, I get so sick of this. And um, um, uh, so, and I, I grew up on a little Indian reservation in the middle of nowhere. Um, well, I, I just spent my first two years there, but, and uh, um, Florida Everglades. And my dad said, yeah, that they'd say uh, white people coming around preaching at them all the time. They'd say uh, too much Jesus. <laughs> that's what that. That's what white people are like um, so often. Uh, we know, we have truths. We know what's right. Well, this is really just an aberration of speech. This is how they've been taught to speak and to think and get stuck in this. And, and so instead there's, but, but FOSIS, you learn by, so inference, it's inferred or similarity or contrast. So um, in Jesus's stuff, he's always, there's an Aramaicism, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, blah, blah, blah. In Aramaic, it's actually, um, it is the case with X the way it is with Y. And so that's a language that was set up where they had a mechanism set up, not the syllogism, but for using Fossic thought and speech. This is interesting because our languages became infected then with syllogism where, where almost all the, yeah. the European languages. Well, okay, so at the same time, well, so Plato was did not favor one over the other. He used both, and you're probably familiar with his use of archetypes and everything. Absolutely. And he, yeah, he really puts that on the map I, because, um, yeah, the, the um, shamanism and seven guideposts, the shamanic story in, in Genesis, I find Genesis is written with by inference yes <laughs> it's written with inferences and contrasts and word plays but it's not really that much archetypal knowledge in a way plato put that on the map P plato was grappling with a way to make phosis more uh, speakable more to give it more um uh access into the world and so he came up with we don't really even have a name for it, but archetypal language. So he came up with the idea of the idea, the the primal archetype essence from which everything. So that's the signature, the personality, the mental state, the physical, the appearance, the constitution, all stem from that primal adea, uh, ados, um, he said. Um, and, and he, you know, worked out terminology for understanding that like his um the, the story of the cave where the people are kept in this cave and they figures on the wall and these shadows and they, they think that's, that that's reality until they break free of their chains and see the light and oh <laughs> actual those shadows were actually people yeah. you know and uh, him you know i mean that's like the gods versus the shadows um the archetypes though so he really um discovered that way of thinking, which is very interesting because then Eudoxus comes along and Robert said astrology could only, he said this 20 years before he realized what time period it, it originated in. He said astrology could only really originate in a time period when people spoke both Phosis and Logos, when both were in use, which really was kind of the lifetime between Plato and Aristotle because Aristotle just ran amok with logic and it infected the whole Greco-Roman empire. And Rudolf Steiner talks about this, and I was so amused. He says, yeah, with the invention of the syllogism, 
they learned how to lie because you can you can make it sound like it's logical, but it's not. And so they learned how to lie, and then um, so much lying went on that just lying, lying, lying it was characteristic of that time period, which reminds us that the Romans said Greek is the perfect language to lie in. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that yeah, that that is actually really fascinating as a linguist myself, looking oh, yeah. back at the different origins of language and how the evolution of language and linguistic expression ended up changing over time and how that changes thinking uh neurolinguism i suppose we could call it is really really quite fascinating and you're right i think in your assessment um and and, and it sounds like robert's assessment that maybe you're re-speaking or rehashing borrowing yeah. whatever that yes. Western culture has really held so hard onto the logos, onto that logical type yeah. of thought. And that's that's actually where our modern present day empiricism from a scientific perspective and reductionism really comes from, is trying to understand that very logical one thing leads to the next, or if this is true, then this is true, and very black and white. Yeah, and sadly, it's not even just the Western world anymore because you know China has adopted the same type of thing, whether in language or in mentality. Um, well, you know, most of the world actually, through imperialism, has been very inundated yeah. with that. So, curious, curious thing it is interesting to see. You know, already we're starting to see glimpses, just like with your book of the extracellular matrix, um, well, how ideas are drastically changing as a pushback to this narrative that's been shoved down our throat. And now, you know, little breakthroughs that are showing, well, that, that's not right. It looks like it's right. It sounds like it's right, but it's not right. And uh, it's interesting to just contemplate and think about, well, what will come next? Yes, yes. Uh, well, one, yeah, so uh, I do go uh, through this Lagos and, um, Fossus in my book, but I'm going to promise you guys, if I think it's already in the library for the Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism, my paper on uh, Fossus and Lagos, um, although I may have named it, I got so irritated with these people that like cultural appropriation and colonizing and they oh, use yeah. this speech pattern. And it's like, they don't realize that they are actually colonizing while they're speaking. <laughs> the irony just kills me. It just yeah. kills me. Yeah, and um, see, I did grow up on a Indian reservation and they didn't. And so I'm familiar with these ways of speaking and and um, and they aren't, and they don't realize that they are actually um, trying to make everybody agree with them. Too much Jesus. And uh, <laughs> they need to, they need to get a, a, a perspective and it's very hard to actually, you know, so I might have read, called it uh, speech colonizing and not, you know, not um, because because what's colonizing about it is if you say I'm right and you're wrong, then immediately you set up a, a war, basically, and yeah. you're colonized and that's that's and then it justifies your colonization. So so OK, so I do describe it some in the book, but not in as much depth as my essay. And um, and so. Uh, my essay, uh, uh, I, I will promise it will be in the in the institute library free. There's a bunch of free stuff in there. Within uh, 
within two or three days, uh, probably within one day. But um, but the the but so the types in Genesis. So the whole of Genesis it's completely written on word plays. And I'll I'll give you an example. The example I use. So uh, uh, Eve is made from Adam's rib. Okay, this sounds like some fairy tale children's story, um, anti-feminist some um, thing or other. Patriarchal. <laughs> yes. But when you actually study the word cell, um, uh, tentpole or rib, and then you begin to study all of its um, related, the related terms, and you find that basically, uh, basically what it, it's, uh, it, it's related to the word for divine command or law or principle. Um, and it's, it's also related to, it's actually as a word for ridge or mountaintop, which is a rib of a mountain or um, a shadow, the shadow or the tent, which is a shadow if you're living in the desert. Yeah. And so it goes on and on with all sorts of- which, Hebrew which, is so poetic that way, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, multi-meanings uh, because there's yeah. only like 900 root, root, root words and then you expand from there yeah. by adding, subtracting little bits and pieces at each end. But um, so, so you have um, Sela law command. You have um, even have Sav um, turtle, like turtle shell, mundane turtle, and um, and so you have like kind of. So really, what you're describing is more like the creation of the mundane shell of the universe, the laws of karma, the laws within which life takes place. Eve, Kava, life. You know, mm -hmm. with Adam, the human genome, so to speak, and uh, the genetic aspect. So. So, and, and I mean, and then you even have, you know, kind of repercussions because shadow, shade, things that have to do with the underworld also come and cave where there's a shadow also yeah. have to do with this word. So that, but it's kind of like the laws of karma. All of this is implied without being stated. In fact, only that one word is used and there's no more description of it. But this goes on and on with all sorts of, of word plays just on and on. And I found, I was shocked when I read, um, I wrote this book based on intuition and and not divine inspiration or anything. But at one point, I I um I was rereading the part where um God was talking to Cain, and it just came to me. It was like an, a a download revelation. It was at this moment that God felt his creation or his, its creation was was marred. I was like, what? Not not when they not they with brought, Eve in the fall. The the banishing from the garden. Oh, well, not with the murder. It was when God. It was when God had to explain. In in and I looked at it carefully in a syllogism. If you do good, will you not be rewarded, so to speak? And it's like, oh my God! Like the the author of authoress, most likely of the J part of Genesis. Um, knows what a syllogism is and she sure does not like it she she could <laughs> with the utter fall and then the other syllogism that's used is when his great great grandson Lamech says uh, I have killed a young man who has injured me because blah 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 he uses a syllogism too to justify himself so so we see the repercussion so so I, I found that fascinating. Like, um, here was this speech again. These speech patterns were known to the author authors, and um, and so. But there's so many word plays uh, in Genesis, and I do. I think one of my because I am such a um, 
partial to the nature wisdom um, tradition, I would, um, you know, Melchizedek, um, that means um, Lord of, Lord of, oh, see, well, here's, uh, and the translations too are so bad, like righteousness, like who wants to hear it's about it? It's true, that? it's true. I mean, oh, you know, this, yeah. this is the biggest thing actually within the study of Kabbalah for alchemists yeah. and hermeticists too, is that every word has such a vast connotation depending on how you use it. And, you, you know, the yeah. traditional words like, you know, Keter, Chokma, Bina, all of the names of the Sefra are all, we should say, you know, they have certain English translations that try and make them very numerically definitive, but it's not like that. You have to open up your mind and see that they're actually archetypes where you can see that same thing playing out in multitudinous different ways in the natural world and in the, the realm of ideas. And it means all of them simultaneously. It's a way of expressing a multidimensional awareness yeah. with very few words, you know? Uh, yeah, that's again and again in the particularly the J author authoress is, um, is a master of the few words, the least words used to get the idea across. Um, so like for instance, uh, the serpent in the tree, oh, and it, the tree of the experience of good and evil would be a better translation of knowledge. Yeah. And, well, and, and immediately, you know, it's like the Christians, it's like, oh, knowledge, like uh, good and evil, you know, and our syllogism and, 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 and right and wrong. But actually oh, that, that word da'at, which is related to one of the sephirot, um, yeah. that it is, um, it means experiential experiential knowledge. It means knowledge that you experienced, which is, so I just translated the tree of the experience of good and evil. Well, that has a completely different connotation. Like, oh, you poor beings, you're going to have to live through the experience of good, of duality now. Yeah. And it's not like, and the emph emphasis is not upon knowledge, upon knowing what good and evil is. In fact, that's more part of the problem. Um, it is. <laughs> yeah. It's a karmic readout. Oh, you're going to be in a dual universe now, poor things. And uh, but but one thing was that I found. So the rabbis say the serpent in the tree uh, must have been had arm uh, wings and feet because and limbs because how did it get up there? And in the Middle East, you wouldn't have a snake in a tree. Uh, and so uh, so they say you know it was a dragon basically. Yeah. And uh, then and indeed there's a, the curse on the serpent. It says you know, on your belly, uh, shall you crawl on the earth all the rest of your days or whatever and eat dirt or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, before it wasn't crawling on its belly. So it must have had arms and wings, you know. Yeah, so that's one of the instances where you see the extreme use of no words. And it's almost perhaps the text is set up for, for teaching people to stretching their, their minds in this way. Um, and, and not spelling everything out. It's, it's not highly secretive necessarily, but it is set up that way. One thing I really liked though, when I began to research Melchizedek, oh, so righteousness. Okay, that word Zedek, uh, Zadik, um means a straight arrow. <laughs> I mean, because ancient Hebrew, it's so literalistic and modern Hebrew too. It's so, it's, it's not abstract like our language. And so a straight arrow, uh, Abraham is a Tzaddik, a straight arrow, and uh, Melchizedek, the Lord of the straight arrow, the straight way, and like righteousness means right and wrong, you know, whereas 
straight arrow just means you know straight arrow and crooked arrow um it's a completely different uh image and so often this these bad translations that they just they get away with as i say um the translators yeah, yeah and sometimes i'll even find them going on and on oh a great one um like they had sex before they ate from the tree like because the man shall leave his family and cling unto his woman and they shall be one flesh and they were not ashamed and the most cunning beast in the field was the serpent so they had sex i mean before the serpent showed up so what does that mean it's, it it means that the self-consciousness and shame and whatnot comes from this you know this polarization this duality we're going to have right and wrong now oh golly um it and and before that they were free of that and and so the sex isn't bad it's morality that's that's bad if if you <laughs> if you want to really dig into it yeah yeah i pointed this out in my hebrew class in college and which was all the other students were all a bible um, college um, they were good people but and one of them said yeah you're right <laughs> <laughs> uh well but melchizedek it turns out is kind of the representative of natural religion that just rises up through the intuition no ancestors no no of of the, the of people who just make the best of what they have in the natural world i i found this actually on a christian website i like the translation so much i i or the uh, suggestion and um not the chosen people and the lineage and all that but just the um the knowledge of nature and um and uh, they share bread and wine, and the the um, the god of um, Melchizedek becomes a god of of um, Abraham, and vice versa. And the god of of um, of Melchizedek is El Elyon, highest in a series of some of gods, yeah. <laughs> the supreme god of the pagans. And that that word is now a word for God in um, Hebrew yeah. uh, Judaism. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to go. Well, at any rate, there's seven different stories that all have to do with um, unfolding of um, experiences, often to do actually with animals. Uh, when God kicks uh, them out of Eden, take off those fig leaves, put on animal skins. And then Cain sacrificing from the vegetables from the field and a Abel from the, the animals. And then finally, Abraham up on the mountain, ready to sacrifice his son. No, there's an animal, the ram. And actually, that's, to my mind, I, I show this progression that there is a time when your animal self appears before you. That's the, your body, like we're just this, you know, idiotic mind occupying this animal body, which looks a lot like an animal, which any astro astrologer could agree with. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's really important. And we need to actualize that and bring that to consciousness and that occurs really in dream time is the best way to do it, or maybe a hallucinogenic plant, but at any rate, an extremely altered mind state to get there. And then when we dream of that animal, then we have, we're on a one-to-one -one, um, basis. And actually, you know, traditionally there are those who are controlled by their animal, which is not, you know, the animal is just, and those are controlled by the human side. And, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to be controlled by your animal type, but, um, yeah. uh, but you lose out on the experience of being a human and the development of the, of the human heart and stuff. Animals are, are where we get our heart from though, and our dreaming. So the animal path, shamanism to my mind is the path of dream because the warm blooded animals have the heart 
and they have the dreaming, they can't control it like we do, we can, but that's all we have. We just have the rational mind, control, ego, self-consciousness, but they have, they have uh, relationships. They take care of their young. The reptiles don't do that much less the amphibians and they hunt in packs. Fortunately, the reptiles don't do that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, very fortunately, that'd be <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> wow, you would not run into a, a 15 rattlesnakes hunting you down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, thanks. <laughs> One is scary enough. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, so the warm-blooded animals have these characteristics that we don't really attribute to them. We're superior. We, you know, we have feelings, etc. They have feelings. We have that only because of them. So, so then the uh, actualization of the animal self is a crucial link in the shamanic path that's the human uh, animal image um, there that personifies shamanism and when we uh, when we have that experience then then that's a highly transformative experience and something to really um, you know work on and we do have inferences of this in a, in, a, in alchemy at least uh, now astrology is not really that's not a life philosophy like this but but we have the the vase with the three you know lions or dragons in there um um you know red red black and white we have the three you know and each representing um you know perhaps a different chemical um uh, uh you know generalization i don't know sulfur mercury and salt are, are a different way of of splitting up matter than than the normal chemical way um, and um, although it's buried in chemistry, as you know, it, yes. it's actually in there. Yeah. But so those also relate, you know, to our animal self, our human self, and then our spirit self. And the shamanic path goes through the animal to get to the spirit because spirit would be dream time. Um, like, like uh, I read, oh, Castaneda is quite a good source on this, but he was not someone who, he was a trickster. His, yeah. his medicine animal was a coyote, and that shows up in one of the books. And Bonwan says, well, that's too bad, but... <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's another book uh, by Timothy Nabb, who studied with uh, Nagualists, with shamans in Central Mexico, about the same time in the 70s, and um, and called The War of the Witches. Quite a, really a extremely dramatic, excellent book. I highly recommend it. Out of print, but not expensive. But his, uh, but the the terminology, the that word nagual, nagual, uh, nagualist, um, that that means the saucer, the animal that they turn themselves into, the um, the spirit world. Uh, the, I mean, it it means this. It has this sort of by dreaming of your animal, you then open up to the spirit world. Is really what that word means. It's maybe a little different and. In the Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda, it's presented a little differently, but it's very simple down to earth definition. And even the animal that the sorcerer turns themselves into too. So, so at any rate, that's the shamanic path. And I do feel it's very, it's that, how can you put it? Alchemy, I, I, I don't think that alchemy was a reflection of a shamanic teaching, but a discovery of the same principles in matter, in the soul, in the spirit, um, in there. Oh, we have body, soul, and spirit again too, which are the three yeah. which relate. 
um, too, of course, alchemically or, or shamanically, like I just said. But so the principles had to be had to be discovered. Uh, Paracelsus certainly discovered them, and 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 he really, I I think, in addition to everything else, he was he really was a shaman in a way. I I don't know. Yeah. We don't know that much about his personal biography, but um, I would he, definitely say so. Um, you know, I, Seija and I, years ago, this must have been around 2010, 2011, somewhere in there, we, we had conversations the first time that we met up about alchemy as a path of Western shamanism in a certain regard, because yeah. there are so many parallels. Uh, we know that, you know, shamanism today is it's categorized uh, archaeologically, anthro anthropologically, tends to be more leaning towards uh, indigenous cultures and traditions, particularly from a more ancient or more primal past, or even, you know, a, a more primal existence in the present. Um, but I think that the next evolution of, of that very same knowledge is taking things with the culture, because, you know, the more that you see shamanically intact cultures historically, those tend to be the more advanced cultures over time, given enough time, they develop, you know, advanced science, advanced medicine, advanced matters of the spirit, you know, psychological warfare, different types of things like that all become integrated into the community by way of interacting with that form of shamanism. I think that there is a very clear perennial thread um, across the entire globe about shamanic cultures, whether we're talking about ancient Taoist medicine and that as a practice of early shamanism, or whether we're talking about shamans of modern day Peru or of ancient Siberia and and also alchemy and and modern herbalists and even to a degree you know modern modern science too I mean especially in the quantum field as it starts to bridge over more into that realm we're, we're it's a different manifestation but they're all coming to the same perennial conclusions yeah yeah um and uh Yes, shamanism is in the thick of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, somebody. This may be. I mean, uh, people can work out. You know, it, I. I don't know. Uh, there's work to be done there. It would be quite fascinating to work on the spiritual. On on. Uh, uh, there must be people for whom the alchemical ideas reflect into their soul and spirit and um, awaken things. Um, uh, so we 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 know that it's not really well developed, perhaps, or if or we find other languages from other cultures, but it's innate in the alchemical uh, worldview, and it, it's perhaps innate in the astrological as well. It's just that ast astrology, you know, is is a way of describing the archetypes, the seven planets, the twelve signs. Well, that's really important. Even the the three, you know, mutable, cardinal, fixed. Um, yep. Um, all of the, and the four elements, um, all these things are a part of the shamanic worldview, but it's they're not geared towards a, exactly the same um, finishing line. It's it's more it's this Platonic. Let's really describe the the ideas, the idea, the eidos, um, the primal archetypes. Yeah. 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 It's absolutely true. Well, you know what? Let, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, let's uh, go ahead and tell all of our listeners where they can find you and how they can uh, keep in touch with all of your teachings and look forward to your future publications and things like that. Yes. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back.
Perhaps you've heard Phoenix speak about alchemy and spagyria, and you yourself want to start practicing? Phoenix has been engaged in more than 15 years of consistent split tests in order to find the most practical and standardized methods to create the highest quality items of spagyric pharmacopoeia possible. He provides the most detailed multimedia courses in existence, walking you through every aspect of spagyria, including beginning theory, setting up your lab, proper technique, important details on how to make a spagyric like a pro, tips for advanced practice, alchemical and hermetic applications, astrological theory, and so much more. In any of his online courses, you will be thoroughly guided through making your own items of spagyric pharmacopoeia, including spagyric tinctures, spagyric elixirs, spagyric essences, spagyric stones, and so much more. You will be able to set up your own laboratory in your home or business and craft up your very own alchemical apothecary in no time flat. To learn more about our online courses, simply visit www.phoenixaurelius.org forward slash online courses and begin your spagyric journey today. And as an Alchemiculture podcast listener, you get to save 15% off the tuition of any course by entering the coupon code TEACHME15 at checkout. Again, that is coupon code TEACHME15, which will save you a whole 15% off any of Phoenix's online courses. As always, all proceeds go towards supporting this podcast and furthering our research. Welcome back from the break, guys. We're here with Matthew Wood. And uh, Matthew, before the break, we were actually talking about all sorts of things. We were talking mostly about uh, your book, Seven Guideposts on the Spiritual Path, a Shamanic Story in Genesis. It, it's not necessarily a thin book either. Like you, you've actually given that quite a bit of thought. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. Yeah, um, and it def- and, and so it's related to my first book, uh, Seven Herbs, Plants as Teachers. But I really just start kept on, I just, for me, Genesis was a meditative document. I just kept on going back to it, learning, learning, learning more and more and more. And then as shamanic um, stories became shamanic, the shamanic path became more vivid to me. I, um, I, I started to see more and more in that document. And I felt like it, I had to kind of redo it um, just from a totally spiritual standpoint. Yeah, the, the seven herbs book is still valid, and those seven herbs are are one way. Um, uh, so, and that's a it's a stimulating way to try and come up with seven herbs that personify these seven um, uh, guideposts on the spiritual path. And um, I I do believe it's a valid selection of seven herbs. I think one could perhaps come up with some herbs that were not as obscure as like cat's ears on them. Uh, <laughs> right. And, um, but uh, at any rate, um, uh, so there, it had, it, and, you know, then people, various people, oh, it's like seven chakras, et cetera, et cetera. I never, I don't try to link together different systems so much. Um, oh, well, I mean, or at least the ones I do link together are just really um, totally crazy different to some people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, Genesis and I don't know and and shamanism that would be one. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I I would say you go back far enough and those documents are like a thousand BC or whatever. It, everything is shamanism. It just becomes more and more shamanism. And and I took as my point of departure. William Blake said, uh, "I have uh, visited the ancient 
um, kingdoms, lordships, patriarchies, uh, repu and republics uh, of of ancient times, and and I've seen these, and they preserve their um, their archetypes basically in vast, huge um, writings on on the wall on walls, hundreds of feet high, or statues, and um, that represented these, and then later they became, uh, you know, the figures in Genesis and stuff. These nomadic tribes. I added this part. The nomadic tribes, you know, would go see the pictures every once in a while, and then they had a more oral tradition, and they carried this on. And and as you may know, these same figures, J Jacob, um, Esau, uh, uh, Isaac, um, they're in. They are in uh, Sufi tales and in in uh, the Quran and and just in the folk tale and and uh, historical epics of the Middle East in general, because they, they represented things to many different people. So, and yeah, there definitely is a monotheistic um, slant that colors things from time to time. Uh, um, so both in the Quran and in uh, the Torah, not, not to mention Western Bible, of course, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Well. Fair enough. I'm I'm really looking uh, forward to digging into this. In fact, I had planned uh, this last weekend to tear through it. I had only gotten through the uh, introduction, uh, which was a significant introduction, by the way. And yeah. uh, I, yeah. I I can't remember. I think it goes like 47 or some something pages long, if I remember right. It was a long introduction. Yeah, it needed it though, in my opinion. Because if yep. you just start hopping into a text like this without having any understanding or, or uh, you know, uh, like I guess just context, yeah, uh, prerequisite would be another good term, then you're going to get lost. <laughs> you know, you won't understand why you're making the correlations that you might be making. So, so yeah, at any rate, I'm excited to continue to get through this, this book. Um, and I'm really excited for your extracellular matrix uh, book that is coming out again. I noticed on Amazon that was uh, shipping on November 7th. I've already placed my pre-order for that. And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so you, you've got tons of things available all over the place. Yeah, holistic medicine and the extracellular matrix, the science of healing at the cellular level. So I'm very excited for that. And you, you mentioned earlier that you're doing a course with Judith Hill right now. Um, yeah. You've had several courses with her over the years, though. Isn't that right, that you've offered through the Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism? Yeah, we did one on the planets and the um, herbs. And uh, that that was, um, uh, in, there's some poor audio and things like that. So that one's very cheap. Or, or, so we have a library, the subscription, $45 a month, and you just get access to virtually everything that's in the past and ongoing class like Judith's and mine right now is not included there, but, um, but then, so that would be a class you'd sign up for, et cetera. And we are all, well, all we have left now is um, Scorpio and um, Sag. We started with Capricorn because we started at, at, you know, and kind of in Capricorn in the mid midwinter last year, uh -huh. all the way around the Zodiac and, I, for us uh, serious people, I think it's appropriate to start with uh, Capricorn. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. We start with the good, hard, hearty structure, as it were. So yes. a good Saturnian sign. So yeah. with that being said, though, um, will that course that you're doing at present ultimately make its way into the library once uh, the course yeah. is done? Yeah, it will. Yeah. 
Yes, and there also is write-ups. The handouts with that class are phenomenal. Um, they're really, I got to just say, phenomenal. Uh, I can't say that they're, I mean, I have 35 pages. Oh, it's interesting, Virgo being so big. I have 35 pages on Virgo, you know, more like 10 or 12 or 16. <laughs> on the others. Yeah, but Virgo rules all so much digestion. Uh, um, you know, and teaching this with, she's quite rigorous. Teaching this, you know, I understood better that Virgo and, rulership of um of uh of the liver um because in in western herbalism what we call the liver is really the metabolism which all cells have all yeah. cells have, um are, have a metabolism a metabolic uh, system and so some of these are uh, most of our liver herbs affect all cells in a way the liver taking care of 60 percent of the metabolism but not all of it so so that's more how Western herbalism has looked upon the liver and Chinese herbalism more like liver fire, like kind of anger, irritability, um, allergy, almost a um, little bit different from Western yeah. and, and different from science. Whereas with the Virgo rulership of, of the liver, you really have the nuts and bolts. It really is the liver in a Western medical uh, biological sense. So, so I, I began to learn and see some, it's good to, to also um, compare these systems and they're not always congruent, right. but then you from the cracks between them too. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, and I think that there's a certain enrichment from the perspective that you get from each of the different disciplines that you, you just simply can't have if you are just sticking yeah. with the perspective of a single singular discipline. It helps to be more well-rounded in one's approach, especially from an herbal perspective. Uh, yeah, uh, but the difference between, you know, just TCM, for instance, or traditional Chinese herbalism, all the way to, uh, you know, classical uh, Greek herbalism and on up to Western herbalism as it arrives to us today. Uh, I mean, vast differences in approach and even pharmacology and other things yeah. like that. So very interesting. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Is there anything else that's that's coming up or any other things that you'd like to let listeners know about that, you, that you're up to? Um, hmm, uh, well, we just did a great little class on, um, on iodine, <laughs> excuse me, uh, yeah, on iodine, which is the um, evolutionary element. Um, and that was quite interesting. We're doing, me and Phyllis Light. So I teach with Phyllis Light, who's a Southern herbalist and she's a genius. and we really work together well, and a lot of those classes are real good. So there's various, and we're gonna be doing female reproductive and the endocrine system, which it's hard to get really, really, really good information on, but we both got good stuff there. We'll even be joined by a third herbalist, uh, Lise Wolf for the um, female system. Um, and uh, those are maybe the immediate classes. Um, uh, they're, we're just always, we're trying to, we're just about have gotten our um, beginning level together um, uh, and we're trying to do a beginning intermediate and uh, advanced eventually have a clinical side too, but it takes time to, to do all this. Um, uh, yeah. And so um, Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism and, uh, or woodherbs.com and uh, Matthew Wood on uh, Institute on um, Facebook uh, Judith has her own site. I can't remember it. Judith Hill Astrology. She has her own site now. And this Robert H. Uh, Schmidt, Schmidt um, maybe it's different initial. I don't know. Look up Robert Schmidt Astrology. There's a really interesting um, 
uh, work on the um, Greek astrology there too that I'd recommend. So, um, yeah, he calls it the cosmological model, right? Yes, yes, because at the time he died, and still, I don't think Ellen's advanced it either. That that you could not say for sure that it was the divinatory system. All you could say was it is for sure a cosmological model. It's like the 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 cosmos, which they visualized as a huge animal talking to us. Yeah. So I guess it'd be one of the talking animals, not the human. <laughs> <laughs> it all goes back to that, doesn't it? <laughs> this prevalent animal intelligence throughout nature. Yes, right, right. Well, this sounds incredible what you're doing. And um, I, I don't know, I'll have to get on some sort of mailing list or something just to stay in touch. And uh, But it, you guys are so technically beyond me. I, as I say, I'm an alchemical philosopher, not a practitioner, you know. So, you know, I, I read uh, Franz Hartmann and uh, that uh, Yolande Jacobi or whatever. Um, yeah. uh, those types of things are the types of things that f formed my my thought when I was young and my, my herbalism. So my herbalism is very uh, compatible with um, uh, alchemy, but I don't go to the trouble of making, um, you know, spagyrica products. I just stuff, stuff the herb in the bottle, you know, everybody has it. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Or some, you know, on some herbs like brandy better than uh, vodka, I got that figured out kind of, either they actually tell me they like it or um, just the taste wise, it's like, well, that does yeah. not work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, all of that is is really critically important too. You know, there there are, and I can say this definitively uh, over all of my years working as both an herbalist as well as a spagyrist is that there are different applications and different uses for herbs far beyond what the spagyric pharmacopoeia actually includes. And so, um, for me. I like to see this type of zippering effect happening between herbalism and spagyria where, you know, spagyria can yeah. have these certain advanced preparations for more deeply penetrating pharmacological use. But for so many of the factors, you don't need to go there. You put them in a bottle, use oil, use, you know, yeah. uh, baser alcohols for tinctures, you know, you homeopathically succuse them, do your decoctions, your infusions, your syrups, you know, all these things, they still have a very, very critical place in medicine. And uh, one for me is not better than the other. They just have different uses. So. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I use small doses with herbs because when I was young, the main, there were, you know, Frater Albertus was still alive and when I first started as an herbalist and, but there weren't really spigeric things on the market, but um, yeah. oh, actually, um, yeah, Robert made some, Robert Bartlett, yeah, from Paralab, and we did have some. They were not really popular. People didn't understand them. Yeah. Um, but um, but uh, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say then. But but so I didn't incorporate a lot of uh, alchemy except for this philosophical and this, you know, I still do think, you know, I, I do think in terms of the three substances in the person and in the plant, too. Um, but I don't make my remedy that way. So, yeah, yeah. well, you know, it's still, still uh, using a, a certain perennial philosophy that we can't separate from regardless of the way that we formulate. So I admire your work greatly. You've influenced me through all of your books over the years. I I'm immensely appreciative for that and also immensely appreciative for you, uh, coming on here. I'm very honored. 
being a guest and sharing all of your wisdom with us today. So again, Matthew, thank you so much, man. Okay, well, maybe we can talk another time, although we talked about so much. I'm not sure what we would talk about. but Oh, I'm sure we could find plenty. You and I have lots and lots of things to chat about. I'm certain about it. So yeah, we'll be in touch again soon. And for all of you listening, all of the links to the things that we've talked about will be down in the description below. If you've really enjoyed this, please go ahead and support uh, the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy. You can do that with our Spagyrics of the Month Club or through a purchase of any of the things in the apothecary. And please go out. Buy a book from Matthew, buy several of his books if you haven't, maybe consider subscribing to his course uh, coursework as well as $45 a month membership at the Matthew Wood Institute of uh, Herbal Medicine. We have uh, all of the links down below. Um, you, we all appreciate your support. If you like this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the bell notification if you're watching on uh, YouTube and uh, get this word out for us. That's the best way that we can change the world. So again, Thanks so much, everybody.